I'm Scott Weatherly. Welcome to 20th Century Geek. When I announced I would be covering this part of comic history, several people questioned if I could cover it all in a single show. They weren't wrong to question me. In today's show, I am going to provide a briefish history of how Alan Moore, Grant Morrison and Neil Gaiman got started on the path to becoming legends. I will come back to the subject at a later date to cover their work from the 90s. Then later in the show, I'm going to be joined by author of The British Invasion, Alan Moore, Neil Gaiman, Grant Morrison and the invention of the modern comic book writer, Greg Carpenter. We will discuss the great creators and the impact they have had on the comic book world. But to cover off everything that these three greats produced, what it means and its impact, it would take more time than I have in this show. Also, it is covered way better than I can ever get into in Greg Carpenter's book. I have already decided that I will be coming back to the subject, as I say, in more detail in the future. So, what do I cover? Well, I've decided that for this show, I'm going to cover each of the creators' secret origin, and then how I feel about one of the books that each of them has created. I'm going to discuss Alan Moore's V for Vendetta, Grant Morrison's Arkham Asylum, and Neil Gaiman's Black Orchid. But first, let's talk about how they got there. Since comics first jumped onto the stands in the 1930s, they have gone through a number of changes. Both the favoured subject matter and the artistic style have evolved and adjusted to the times. Sometimes this has been a natural progression, other times it has been governmentally mandated. I will definitely cover this in more detail in a future show, but it is worth quickly covering to provide some context now. In 1954, Frederick Wortham produced a study called Seduction of the Innocent, in which he stated that comics were corroding the moral fibre of America. He twisted, manipulated and even fabricated anecdotal stories and ill-informed studies to claim that comic books presented acts of sex and violence in such a lurid and vile manner that it was corrupting the young readers. The warped content of the book was taken so seriously that the American government carried out a congressional inquiry. The result of this was the self-imposed and self-governed comic book code. From that point on, comic books and comic book publishers had to check every story and panel to make sure that it did not depict an act of crime, violence, snubs to authority figures, anything of a sexual nature, especially anything that could be perceived as homoerotic. The result that was comics were being forced down an immature and toothless path. I should highlight that it wasn't all bad. During this period, Stan Lee and Jack Kirby and John Romita created some of the most iconic superheroes of all time. Overall, though, the medium floundered, both creatively and financially. By the late 70s, there were a few signs of things starting to change. Denny O'Neill and Neil Adams' Batman run, their politically charged Green Arrow and Green Lantern run at DC. Over at Marvel, there were more diverse characters like Luke Cage and Shang-Chi being created. However, these were in the smallest minority, and maybe not as progressive as some people thought they might be at the time. The common opinion at this point was that comics were for kids. This was going to change, with a chance being taken on a group of new, unknown writers that were brought in by an editor, not trapped in by the legacy of the comic book code. Karen Berger saw editing comics as a stepping stone on a career to publishing books, a chance to make some contacts and get some experience. By the early 90s, she was a leading editor and instigator of the creation of DC's Vertigo comics. But let's not get ahead of ourselves. Let's go back to Northampton in the early 1980s, 
Alan Moore and what he was doing. For several years, Moore had fancied himself a cartoonist as well as a writer, producing work for small-time and local publications. He found this frustrating and artistically unfulfilling, as he was sure that he was not reaching his potential. Soon, he realised that he was a much better writer than artist, and shifting his focus, he started to get noticed. He got some work on the UK's gateway publication for almost all of the country's comic creators, 2000 AD. While these short strips are interesting and clearly contain some of the more elements, they are a bit dated and I would suggest them for more completists only. At the time though, they got him noticed and the opportunities were opened up, allowing him to start writing works such as Miracle Man, V for Vendetta and Captain Britain for Marvel. With each work, Moore's writing gets stronger and more ambitious. I'll get into V for Vendetta in more detail later, but I will say now that I'm a huge fan of these early works. I have read his Captain Britain run a number of times and love it more each time. It is the surrealist fun that makes comics so great. Moore also did what he was good at. He took a failing, bland, poorly realised national representation character and made him and his world or should that be worlds, more interesting. Captain Britain became more whimsical as well as interesting, and it was a success. So he applied the same method to a different unknown character, with a starkly different result. He took a daft Silver Age character in Marvel Man, or Miracle Man now to appease the lawyers, and simply asked the questions, what if this was real? Where would it really end up? The end result is a brilliant trilogy of books that answer the question with stunning results. Miracle Man is seriously worth seeking out. It starts small and keeps building, finally reaching the inevitable godlike finale. I really don't want to spoil anything about this book because it is so good, but when presented with the Shazam family ripoff that the Miracle family were, Moore turns it on its head. He acknowledges everything that went before in a kind of, it was all a dream, fashion. But the reason that these characters were able to dream these wondrous and crazy adventures is nightmarish. The effect that finding out you can switch from yourself to a superhuman is explored with differing results. One eventually sacrifices his everyday persona to become the best his superhuman self can be for the betterment of the whole of humanity. Another makes the same choice simply to relish the power and superiority. The final book represents the confrontation between these two in a horrific way, without showing a punch being thrown. The images in the book present the aftermath of what triggers the fight and what is left after. Seriously, if you think Zack Snyder went a bit crazy in Man of Steel, you need to check this out. The difference being that while Superman is placed to save lives at all cost, Miracle Man accepts that people are going to be killed when these two super beings fight. More than that, he acknowledges that his actions will have resulted in some of these deaths, but not taking those actions would have resulted in even more. When you read Miracle Man, you can see some of the hangover from Captain Britain being wiped away, but also the first iterations of characters that would become more realised and future works. Most notably, Watchmen's Dr. Manhattan. Anyway, I don't think that spoils anything. 
And if you are an Alan Moore fan, I highly recommend collecting the three books. A Dream of Flying, The Red King Syndrome and Olympus. In the midst of all this, he was also t- working on the great V for Vendetta. As I say, I will get into this more later. These comics were being published in the UK anthology series called Warrior, which was being read and noticed by a number of editors working at DC at the time. Among these was Len Wein. He was loaded with writing and editing books and was looking for someone to take over creative on one of these books. The easy one to pass on at the time was Swamp Thing. It was failing, sales were down and it was due for cancellation. So thinking that he has little to lose, he reached out to one of the English writers whose work he had been reading in the British anthology books. Alan Moore was about to get his big break. Up to this point, Moore had made his mark working on titles on which he could reinvent the characters. As I have already mentioned, he took the premise of both Captain Britain and Miracle Man and turned them on their heads to produce something amazing. When he came on Swamp Thing, it might be assumed that it was for the same reason. It was acknowledged that Swamp Thing was struggling. It was considered that this walking vegetable, created a decade before, was quickly losing its novelty, and there was not much else that could be done with it. Unfortunately, while knowing this, DC did not want the character going through a revisionist transformation. In order to maintain the character, DC applied a series of guidelines, limiting what Moore could do. Moreover, he was not starting the book from a new number one either. In fact, he had to finish the previous writer's story with his first issue, Swamp Thing 20. Alan Moore, for real, starts the Swamp Thing issue 21, The Anatomy Lesson. I'll be reviewing this issue in my blog next week. Please go check it out. What I will say here is that this is the real start for Alan Moore. It contains all the fundamental Moreisms. And as Greg Carpenter highlights in his excellent book, The British Invasion, this issue is a statement of intent for Moore. Now that he had broken into the big time, his creative artistry is on full display. And Moore being Moore, he had a lot more planned for the book and the swamp-dwelling beastie. At first, he was being guided by his editor, the creator of Swamp Thing, Len Wein. However, Len Wein's workload was still getting larger. In order to keep on top of things, Wien decided that he needed to delegate some more of his responsibilities. One of these was to the editorship of Swamp Thing. Len passed it to Karen Berger. Berger was not really interested in the superhero comics, but finding herself in the comic book industry, wanted to work on books that she enjoyed. More than that, she wanted to work on books that were innovative and pushing boundaries. DC may have applied some limitations on more, but Berger was willing to encourage him to push the stories. Starting with issue 25 of Swamp Thing, their partnership took off. This partnership not only started to make Moore's name, it started to set Berger's reputation, not only as an editor, but also as someone that could work well with the burgeoning group of British talent. This is where the story really gets interesting. His work was becoming incredibly well regarded by the guys behind the scenes at DC which gave Moore two opportunities. The first was to write a two-part Superman story to end the current Superman run, before it was to be rejuvenated by John Byrne with The Man of Steel. In essence, Alan Moore was given the opportunity to write the final Silver Age Superman story in Whatever Happened to the Man of Tomorrow. It's a short two-issue story that is one of the quintessential Superman stories. 
It contains as many Superman characters as possible and is a great send-off to a rather silly era for the Man of Steel. The second was to give him a chance to pitch an idea for his own 12-issue series with fellow Brit artist Dave Gibbons. The intention was to use some of the old Charlton characters that DC had purchased over the years and do a book in that universe. The story and the idea grew, but it was to hit a potential brick wall. You see, DC wanted to start using these characters in their own universe, and in order to do this they asked Moore to not use some of his ideas. They wanted him to write the book, but maybe do it in the DC universe? And even kick off new series for some of the characters? DC was thinking long-term sales. Moore and Gibbons were thinking about the story they wanted to tell. This is where events could have gone different, and we could have even been without one of the best works in the comic medium of all time. Alan Moore, being Alan Moore, stood his ground and decided that if he couldn't use the characters in the toy box, he would create his own. Facsimiles of the characters he had wanted to use. If we can't have Blue Beetle in the question, we will get Night Owl and Rorschach. Doing this removed the brick wall out of the way, and Moore and Gibbons would go on and create one of the most well-loved and well-known comics of the 20th century, Watchmen. Now we could go into this book and how good it is, the use of structure, mirroring and the character arcs, and go on and on. However, so many people have already done this that I don't want to retread this ground again. That's why I'm going to be covering V for Vendetta later. So let's leave Alan Moore for a while, plotting the end of the world for the betterment of humanity and follow up on what Karen Berger was doing. Berger was gaining a strong reputation in DC, having worked well with Moore on Swamp Thing. Its popularity was growing and it was becoming more ambitious. DC was also looking for new talent to add similar unique takes on their catalogue of characters. Where better to search for that talent than the same pool? Karen Berger was therefore sent to England to meet with these prospective writers and artists. The idea was simple. Interview this prospective talent over a day, allowing them to promote their work to date and pitch new ideas. One of the writers that attended on that day in London travelled all the way by train from Scotland. The journey spent running through the different stories that he could pitch, knowing that every other writer would be throwing out stories of Batman, Superman and the rest of the Justice League, he decided to think about lesser-known characters. Eventually, the young man landed on an obscure hero, Animal Man. Of course, this young man was Grant Morrison, and the decision to pitch a lesser-known character would pay off. In fact, leading to his excellent Animal Man run. That's not to say that he didn't have a Batman pitch, and he presented this as well. Karen Berger knew it was a good idea, but wanted Morrison to try the Animal Man idea first. Letting the Batman pitch grow and become more detailed. This would become the fantastic Arkham Asylum, which I will also cover in more detail later in the show. Morrison was no stranger to superheroes and had been working in the British comic scene for some time. He had produced works for Marvel UK with Zoids, as well as other UK standouts such as Doctor Who. However, up to this point his best work had been on the weekly sci-fi and horror anthology 2000 AD. He, like Alan Moore, contributed to the one-off Twisted Tales Future Shocks. He also wrote several Judge Dredd stories, as well as his first epic across four phases, Zenith. 
Zenith is the ongoing story of a young superhero in an age when the great superheroes have passed. So, what do you do? Well, you become a rock star. This series is a representation of where Morrison was at the time. A young man with a punk leanings wanting to upset the apple cart, while still being taken seriously. The son of nuclear activists, Morrison was well aware of the balance of power in the world and how the establishment could not be trusted. This plays out again and again in his early comics, whether using the red and blue zoids to represent the powers on either side of the Cold War, or creating a talented young hero not wanting to follow in the footsteps of his elders. Morrison may move on to more surrealist, interdimensional adventures later, but it is fair to say that they all contain a personal element, something of Morrison. Therefore, it is not surprising to find that this pitch for Animal had a focus on animal rights activism. The story is a fantastic tale pulling elements from the DC vault and throwing them in with new ideas. Buddy Baker, as Animal Man, is not the lone superhero or mythical godlike figure. He's a family man. A regular guy with powers who is unsure of his place in the world. Should he be using his powers for good or to get a great job? The story starts with him coming out of retirement and trying again to establish himself as being worthy. Is this a further element of Morrison in his work? A young man looking to prove his worth among other creators he respects, while not wanting to compromise on his core values and creative impulses? Originally the idea was for Morrison to complete a four-issue miniseries, revitalising the character and then moving on to something else, most likely Arkham Asylum. However, as the first arc started coming to an end, he was asked to continue with the series. Not wanting to lose the opportunity, he agreed. But what could he do after the story he had intended to come to an end? What we get is Morrison letting himself off the leash and producing his DC Statement of Intent. Much like the anatomy lesson is to Moore, issue 5 of Animal Man, the Coyote Gospel, is to Morrison. I will also be covering this in a lot more detail in my blog next week, but I will say this, the issue provides shades of even his most recent work in Multiversity. Morrison was making a name for himself within DC, and during this time he had been refining the script and concept for Batman Arkham Asylum with the great artist Dave McKean. What had started out as a 48-page story had expanded to 128 pages to accommodate the expanded story and fantastic art design. The finished product was released in December 1989 in prestige hardback and was a huge success for DC and Morrison. The dark story and daring artwork made it stand out from the usual comic book fare and was talked about in mainstream terms. The book was a punk take on the Dark Knight and his psyche. Morrison was taking all his ideas one step further. It's easy to believe that he was not only reacting to the old guard of comics from the early 80s and 70s, Morrison was reacting to his contemporaries. It has been suggested that he was reacting to the attention that Alan Moore had received for Watchmen a few years previously. Watchmen is a classic and deserves all the credit and praise that it gets. It defined an era and established comic books as a medium in which storytelling could be sophisticated and literary. But all of this is built on the precision and structure of Moore's storytelling style. Yes, Dave Gibbons' art is excellent, without a doubt, but the strength in Watchmen is how that art is directed by the storyteller. 
I can understand an argument that it is too structured, and while being an excellent story, loses some of the fluidity that imperfection can bring. I believe it is this that Morrison was rebelling against. In Watchmen, Moore provides a clinical character study and breakdown of what a superhero would be if they were real. Morrison, on the other hand, is looking at the hidden reality within the mythical superheroes. Batman could never be real, but what is the reality within the ludicrous concept of a man fighting crime dressed as a bat? Moore finds angst and human weakness. Morrison finds a lurking insanity that can be used to fight the good fight. This back and forth, whether real or perceived, can be evidenced between the two creators in a number of their works. Regardless of this, with the ongoing adventures of Animal Man and the twisted tale of Batman, Arkham Asylum, Grant Morrison had become an established creator from which big things were going to be expected. Going back to Karen Berger on that talent perspective trip, Grant Morrison wasn't the only legend that came through the door on that day. A few hours after Morrison had left the building, a young Neil Gaiman entered and he was joined by Dave McKean. Leading up to this sit-down meet, Gaiman had followed a different path to both Morrison and Moore. They had spent time coming up through creative writing and committing time to on numerous small-time comic jobs. Gaiman became a journalist and spent his dues conducting interviews and writing reviews. He was getting regular jobs and was heading for a comfortable career in journalism. However, on the side, he was still writing and submitting short stories, keeping his hand in. He may have had aspirations of being a comic book writer when he was younger, but that thought had passed. At least, that wasn't until he found Alan Moore's new Swamp Thing. He found a comic that wasn't just for superheroes, it had something more to it. This interest grew when on a journalism job he got to meet the new writer of Swamp Thing and ask him about how and why he wrote comics. This meeting developed into a friendship. So when Gaiman wrote his first script, he sent it to his new friend, and although they both admitted it wasn't quite ready, Moore used it as the basis for issue 51 of Swamp Thing, and gave Neil Gaiman credit for the story idea. The second attempt was better, but would not make it into print for years. It was an unusual historical take on Swamp Thing, or a Swamp Thing-like character, Jack in the Green. The fact that it wasn't printed didn't put him off, but he focused on a publication closer to home. Like Moore and Morrison, he contributed some future shocks to 2000 AD, cutting his teeth on the satirical sci-fi shorts and getting some exposure to the industry. Gaiman was growing in confidence, but was not yet fully committed to comics. He was still writing his short stories, one of which was a partial childhood memoir called Violent Cases. At the same time, he also met an up-and-coming artist, Dave McKean. Working together, this short prose story becomes Neil Gaiman's first graphic novel. This is an interesting book that is readily available, but I would recommend it to Gaiman purists and those interested in the more artistic and obscure graphic novels. It was this book that gained the two artists enough attention for them to be invited to the DC talent interviews. It was during this interview that Gaiman pitched a high-level idea for a Black Orchid story. Something that was purely Gaiman, and would be very different to what was on the newsstands at the time. The idea landed with DC, but it was a risk they were not willing to take just yet. In order to build up the reputations of these two, they were given separate assignments. Dave McKean was introduced to Grant Morrison and Arkham Asylum, while Gaiman was given a series of one-shots and secret origin tales. With each of these stories, his reputation grew. 
So when Black Orchid was finally released, it was met with great critical and fan praise. The success of this book, as well as the reputation he had built with his fans in the DC office, gave Gaiman confidence to push his luck. He admitted that playing in the DC Universe pool had been interesting, but it had come with constrictions. So instead of playing in a pool that was controlled by someone else, why not create your own pool? In addition to the Black Orchid pitch, Gaiman had also pitched an idea about rebooting an old Jack Kirby Joe Simon character, the Sandman. Originally a noir pulp crime fighter, the character had been repurposed several times and Gaiman wasn't interested in any of them. If he was going to ask for this, he was going to create his own character. The initial pitch was for a limited series, much like Morrison's Animal Man, which would exist in, but also just left of, the DC Magic Universe. It would have the potential for cameos by existing characters, but the tone and content would be one of horror fantasy, and for mature readers. In 1988, the first issue of Sandman was published, and it can easily be stated that this is the moment that Gaiman truly becomes an icon. The series defies the expectations of what a comic should be, and really was like nothing that had been produced so far. Fans lapped it up, and although Gaiman would feel the pressure of having to produce a monthly comic, he was rewarded with a legion of dedicated fans that were thrilled and inspired by this new series. The first bump in the series came when the first art was completed. As I mentioned, the story was intended to be a limited series, but due to popular demand, he was being asked to create more. But like Morrison, he had to ask, well what do I say? It is in this moment that Morrison and Gaiman share a moment of creative crossover. Following the first arc of Animal Man, we get the Coyote Gospels, Morrison letting loose. Following the first arc of Sandman, we get Issue 8 and a conversation between the Sandman, Dream, and his eternal sister, Death. The issue is a moment of contemplation and a chance for Gaiman to reflect and realise that this series can be whatever he wants it to be. Like Morrison, it is Gaiman letting loose, just in a quieter way. I will get into this in more detail on my blog. I'm going to draw the history lesson to a close there. The secret origins told and our intrepid creators have broken through and on the path to becoming legends. I know that there is so much more to cover. The Killing Joke, From Hell, Doom Patrol, The Invisibles, Good Omens and the rest of Sandman and I promise I will come back to the topic in the future. We will pick up the tale and we will find out what happens next. But before I move on to the interview with Greg Carpenter, I'm going to review a key book from Morrison, Gaiman and Moore in publication order. I'm going to start with Neil Gaiman's Black Orchid, published in 1988. Then Morrison's Arkham Asylum from 1989, and ending with Moore's V for Vendetta, which was finally completed and collected in 1990. Starting off then, let's look at Neil Gaiman's Black Orchid. I chose this not because it's Gaiman's best work of this period, more because it is one of the most accessible while being a good showcase of Gaiman's style and talent. I have to admit to only reading and rereading this book recently, and also the fact that of the three, I have the least exposure to Gaiman's comic book work. Having said that, of the three books I will be reviewing, Black Orchid produced the most emotional response. It is also the most complicated to explain. 
Arkham Asylum contains a host of well-known characters and with a small amount of knowledge is relatively accessible. V for Vendetta is a self-contained story that doesn't need any additional knowledge. Black Orchid, however, uses a character from the DC vaults and drops the reader in the middle of the story with a protagonist that has as many questions as the reader does. But I'm not sure that this is actually about the series of events that take place, but more about the emotion that the story evokes. Let's try and give it some context though. The vigilante Black Orchid has infiltrated an organised crime syndicate, but within a few panels it is revealed that she has been found out and is killed. Now this is no spoiler, it happens within the first few pages. At the moment of death a flower opens and a purple skinned woman is born, with partial memories of whom and what she is. From that point on she embarks on a quest to answer these questions and discover more about the events that led to her creation. I don't want to get into details around the story for as it would spoil several key points. Although while I am going to stick to the theme of emotion, please be aware that there may still be some spoilers ahead. Okay, so emotion. This book for me is filled with it, especially love, hate and how the two can become twisted together. Let's start with love. The story of who the Black Orchid is reaches back to a young girl, Susie, who is abused by her hate-filled father but who finds a loving friendship with the boy next door. The love between these two friends lasts for decades, even after the girl runs away and leads a life of bad decisions and constant running. The two eventually reunite and the friendship continues, until it is brought to an abrupt end when Susie is murdered. Not feeling the love yet? I'll get there, I promise. The boy next door has grown up to be a scientist and is trying to breed a human-plant hybrid, unsuccessfully so far. After Susie's death, however, he takes a sample of her DNA and introduces that into the mix. Her essence leads to the success of the experiment, and the black orchids are created. These plant women are not blank slates. They carry the core of Susie, and despite everything, that genetic memory always turns to good and compassion. In so many comic books, a character born out of death will seek vengeance and violence. The Black Orchid simply wants to find a place to be. This could have easily been a book about a female character taking control of her destiny with violence. In the hands of Gaiman, we get a character driven by curiosity and compassion. At no point in this book does Black Orchid enter into an aggressive confrontation. Characters around her do, but never her. At one point, Black Orchid witnesses the attempted assassination of the man that killed the original Susie. She could stay and let him die, but she intercedes and saves him, not wanting there to be any more killing. It could be argued that this is innocence and naivete, but it is more than that. She is driven by a compassion for all life. Black Orchid is not alone on this quest. She is joined by a younger Orchid offspring who prefers to be called Susie. The new Susie is filled with the innocence and temperament of a child. Soon after she meets Black Orchid, she asks if she can call her Mommy, and Black Orchid agrees. As simple as that, a mother and daughter bond is formed, and there is no question about the love that has formed in that bond. The counter to this throughout the book, though, is the coldness of hate. When the mastermind of the crime syndicate, Lex Luthor, finds out about the floral creations, all he wants to do is own them. 
To Lex, finding that these amazing things exist, there is no wonder, only the realisation that he doesn't have them, and that doing so could be beneficial to him. He hates not owning, and that is not acceptable. His coldness permeates with the rest of this organisation, in which killing someone is part of business, and the profits of drugs and prostitution are treated in the same way as any business would review its profit margins. This demonstrates that this organisation and its leader have no respect for life or anyone that prevents them from making money. This may not be considered extreme enough to be hate, but the negative influence of this group is the force that leads to the majority of violent confrontations in this story. The final example of the counter to Black Orchid is a scene in which she meets Poison Ivy. Orchid is a beautiful personification of nature at its most exotic. She is compassionate and bright. When we meet Ivy in Arkham Asylum, she is living in darkness, using her power to make corrupted pets out of the plant matter and dead animals. She is a living weed, resenting the world. She is a dark reflection of Black Orchid and what hate could do to someone with her past and her current situation. Okay, let's get twisted. Love and hate are two sides of the same coin. They are so close that one can be confused for the other, and a whole host of other clichés. The point is though, that these are clichés for a reason. In this book we see several characters twisted to hate by love. Susie's abusive father believes he is punishing her for being what he calls a slut. I don't doubt that he thinks he loves her, but that love manifests in hate and abuse, to such an extent that she runs away. She eventually meets and marries a man and small-time crook, Carl. Over time, his love for her becomes a jealous passion that gets out of control. He even admits later in the book that he loved her so much that, he, that the thought of her with any other man drives him nuts, so he killed her. So seeing these floral representations of her again brings it all back and he is driven to destroy any representation of her. He will do anything to get this jealousy out of his mind. The end of the book is quite restrained. The characters themselves admit that it feels like an anti-climax. This obviously isn't typical of comics, which usually end in a good old-fashioned punch-up. But it is how life is. How often do we get to the end of a series of events and feel that the end is lesser than expected? So what happens? Well, life goes on. This may be the end of the book, but it could just be one story in the lives of these characters. Having read this twice in the last week, I found this quite moving. The art of Dave McKean is wonderful, and the whole story is not Gamer's best, but it contains some of the core elements that would be expanded in much more lavish detail in the Sandman series.
But Arkham Asylum had been developing for years, you know, this was the thing I had in my mind, if I could get to do Batman, to do this big, weird, European film, Batman. Right. So I went down with those two ideas. Animal Man was, like, extemporised on the train, <laughs> and Arkham, was, <laughs> well, Arkham had been worked on for years. Okay. And they bought into them straight away, you know, they, they, I don't, they couldn't understand what the fuck I was saying, but they, <laughs> they liked my smile. <laughs> he seems nice. Yeah, he seems okay. Give him a... a 120-page graphic novel. And that, at that, which at that point, like, had there been anything like No, that? but that was Dave McKean, because he came in and suddenly... I'd written a 48-page story and then it expanded to 64. Mm-hmm. And I imagined it as being super realistic and, you know, Batman's in, like, this terribly gritty every little bit. <laughs> Who would... I mean... Like, that, I was thinking... What kind like, of style? Like a Boland, but I was thinking Gary Ooh. Leach or somebody, you know, who okay. had done Marvel Man. <clears throat> but then... Dave came on and he was a completely different kind of artist. So it, Dave, so what I always imagine that I'm was you guys sitting in the bar going, "If we were ever going to do a Batman no, story, no, he, like he came on board and he hated this shit. He didn't want to draw Batman at all, which was brilliant for the book in the end. <laughs> why? Why explain? <laughs> he just wasn't in. He just thought it was trash, really. Basically, <laughs> you know, I, I was with him on the Arkham Asylum too, and some fans saying to him, "Could you draw the draw me the Human Torch?" And Dave saying, "There's no way I'm drawing that. It's crap." <laughs> And the guy going, but he's just he's just a guy on fire. <laughs> and Dave said, I don't care, it's crap. And he wouldn't draw Wolverine or anything because he's just crap. But he would draw Sandman. Right. Even though he's got a weird haircut. So there was a kind of... But, but you know, I think Dave made it because otherwise it might have just been an ordinary comic or it might have been Killing Joke too. Or, but he came in and he didn't want to do it at all. But once I told him all the other stuff, the stuff he was into was the behind-the-scenes stuff, the tarot cards and the Jungian psychology and the Alistair Crowley stuff. He totally got that's on board how you, with yeah, That's how you jacked him in. Yeah, and he was into that. He was into the underpinnings of it and the psychology of it. And he, he So he's like, look, I'll deal with the superhero aspect of it. Yeah, and I just it, hate but... it. Batman Arkham Asylum, or more properly, Batman Arkham Asylum, A Serious House on Serious Earth, is Grant Morrison's first Batman work. And what a start. In Morrison's mind, this was to be drawn in a super-realistic way, with detailed character design. However, he was paired with an artist who, firstly, had no interest in drawing a superhero book, and secondly, had a style that was to be restricted by things such as reality. Dave McKean. The story concept is pretty simple. The inmates of Arkham, led by the Joker, have taken over the asylum and they want Batman to come and join them. As the Joker sees it, Batman is just as crazy as them and should be welcomed to his rightful home. This runs parallel with the events of Amadeus Arkham and the tragic story of how he came to establish the Institute. Okay, so the story may be simple enough, but the character presentation, themes and subtext are a lot more complicated. For a fully informed analysis on all these books, I am going to recommend Carpenter's British Invasion once again. 
I am going to try and do my best to highlight and explain some of the points that stood out and what they mean to me as a fan. There has always been the debate as to how this book should be received by the reader. Is it actual canonical events? An Elseworld story? Or is this a representation of Batman's dreams? Each of these is a valid interpretation with evidence to support them. But for me, the book is split. I've always considered the words and the story of Amadeus Arkham to be an accurate depiction of what actually happened, but supported by images as they would, as they would be imagined by someone reading the recounted events. But in my head, this is Batman. The story of Batman entering Arkham Asylum and running the gauntlet of villains, however, I have always taken to be a tortured nightmare, a representation of Bruce Wayne's worst fears and how he perceives these villains. Okay, so let me throw out a couple of points to support my interpretation. Primarily is the art by Dave McKean. The book is a gallery of fantastic pages that work as art in their own right. Some are intriguing, some nightmarish, but all challenging. I have to admit this was not always my opinion. When I was younger, I didn't understand why this book was looked so weird. Where were the comic book images I was used to? Now that I am older and my taste and understanding have grown, I can see the images in this book for what they are. I won't deny that this is a challenging book to look at, but it is all part of the parcel, and it is there for a reason. Despite all the art being very much within Dave McKean's style, there is a difference between the images of the Amadeus Arkham story and the Batman story. The characters designed in the Arkham pages are realistic and within an enormously proportioned world, although accentuated with shadow and texture. This story, collected on its own merit, could be a historical graphic short about the tragic life and mental breakdown of one man simply trying to find his way to help. The images within the Batman story, on the other hand, are hyper-stylized, where all the inmates of the asylum, including Batman, are depicted as grotesques. Warped versions of reality. I find it difficult to believe that the image of the Joker in this story could appear in the images of the Amadeus Arkham story. Further to this, the panels of Batman talking with Commissioner Gordon outside the asylum are all in black and white. Colour is not introduced until Batman enters the asylum. The twisting of colour and character design to me is a great depiction of a dreamscape and the fears of a psychosis that fuels it. The duality and difference between the two stories' art leads me to my next point. Amadeus and Batman are following the same path. Both are driven to help a greater cause after experiencing a tragic event with their parents. Batman seeing his parents shot in front of him, as highlighted when he participates in the word association game. Amadeus witnesses the deterioration of his mother's mental state with tragic consequences. The difference is in the detail. Amadeus starts on a non-violent path of providing a place in which the mentally ill can be treated and hopefully cured. As events continue to pan out and we learn of the fate of his wife and daughter, we witness Amadeus's own mental deterioration. The pressure and darkness takes its toll and eventually breaks him, driving him to take revenge. Violence, once again, being the only answer. The question is, following a more violent path, is Batman condemned to the similar fate? Is the Joker right? Does Batman actually belong among the twisted inmates of the asylum? Having to pierce his own hand with broken glass to regain mental control is not the behaviour of a person in a balanced psychological state. In fact, after leaving the Institute at the end of the book, 
Batman actually acknowledges that he fears the Joker might be right. There are hints of this throughout the book. The scene I mentioned earlier of Batman taking part in the word association game, demonstrating his sensitivity to the topic of his parents' death. The most worrying of all is his reaction to the killing of the asylum doctor who, it turns out, released the inmates. Batman, who has dedicated his vigilante career to protecting life in all circumstances, simply states, he got what he deserved. More than condoning killing, I am pretty sure that Killer Croc is killed after the fight with Batman. This further fits into the interpretation of this story in the book, at least being a dream. Batman would never kill, or allow a person to be killed, if he could do something about it. But in his darkest dreams, I am sure he wants to let loose and use a solution that would prevent future damage and danger. The final thing I want to point out is something about the Joker that Morrison comes back to in much more detail in his later Batman run. The fantastic idea that the Joker is a blank slate personality. He has no actual personality of his own, which is why the same person can be a mischievous bank robber one day and a ruthless game-playing psychopath the next. This idea allows for all the iterations of the Joker across decades to be valid. It also adds to the horror of the character and actually builds on the comment made by the Joker in Alan Moore's The Killing Joke. That if he has a past, he would rather it be multiple choice. It's an excellent book that I have read multiple times. This is easily in Morrison's top five works. However, I would suggest that this is not the recommended book for a Morrison or Batman first-timer. It actually benefits from having a deeper knowledge of both. attending a lot of the Rock Against Racism marches with the Anti-Nazi League, I knew a bit about the threat of fascism. Um, so this struck me as potentially a very interesting backdrop for this future world that I was going to be talking about, because as with most of the future worlds in science fiction, you're not talking about the future. You're talking about the present. You are using the future as a way of giving a bit of room to move, um, a bit of a fantasy element. It makes it into something that is once removed from the thing that you're actually talking about, so people can enjoy it on a fantasy level, while hopefully perhaps some of the deeper points that you're making are sinking in. So we, we put V for Vendetta together on that basis.
finally we come to Alan Moore's incredibly British V for Vendetta. I've been aware of this book for years, although I only got around to reading it last summer. Weirdly, people all over the world have been affected by the book without knowing anything about it. I think it is more to do with the film adaptation in 2005, but V's mask has become synonymous with the anarchy group Anonymous. It will also be seen at almost every political protest and rally. It may not be blowing up the Houses of Parliament, but I think V would be happy to know that he has inspired some level of rebellion. The book took almost a decade to complete, and I think this is evident in the writing and storytelling. Not that any of this is bad, but as you progress through the book, the writing becomes more sophisticated and ambitious. The writing Moore is doing on other books, like Miracle Man and Swamp Thing, are bleeding into V for Vendetta. The previous two books are relatively simple in their plotting, a single main character with supporting characters in a single story. V for Vendetta, on the other hand, is incredibly complex and intricate. Set in a dystopian Britain that is an extreme what-if of fascism rising following a nuclear war, the central story is that of V, a mass rebel who is taking revenge on people for what has been done to him and the country. This then cascades into layers of stories, the next level down is that of Evie Hammond, a young girl who is rescued by V following a near rape and is drawn into V's plans more and more. Evie is the entry point for the reader. She's a regular girl trying to get along in a difficult world. Through her eyes, we get to see every level of this corrupt Britain. I would even suggest that while V is the protagonist, providing a history of the world, it's Evie's story that guides the reader. By the end of the book, you are Evie. You have been reborn and willing to accept that the world is broken and needs fixing in the most severe way. Well, at least I was. She has the strongest arc in the story, transforming from a scared citizen to a strong leader on the ongoing rebellion. The other story I want to mention here is that of Eric Finch, the Chief of Police at New Scotland Yard. The unenviable job of stopping V falls to him and this quest drives him to the brink of madness. He is a good man that has become part of the machine. He may not agree with what's going on, but is it easier to do better inside the machine rather than out? His story is fascinating to me in its normalcy. No matter what world there will always be a good cop trying to do the right thing. Beyond these there are a number of characters and their stories that Moore uses to flesh out the world. We dip in and out of them. These people are all swirling around the events put into motion by V. Some looking to take advantage, others looking to survive, and some just wanting a quiet life. But all bringing something interesting and important to the book. V for Vendetta is very much a product of its time and Moore's political leanings. The question is, has it dated? There may have been a time in the late 90s when I would have said that the ideas in this book about fascism and the corruption are a fictional representation of the lessons of history. However, as we know, what goes around, comes around. And as of February 2017, I would say that this book is more relevant than ever. This is no longer a British story. This is a warning to the world. A lack of action on the part of a good person is no different to supporting the evil that is corrupting the world around us. This may be a piece of fiction, but as V says, Artists use lies to tell the truth. Yes, I created a lie, but because you believed it, you found something true about yourself. When I read this book, I found something true about myself, 
The question is, am I brave enough to do something about it? And that, friends, is a story for another podcast. So many people talk about the importance of Watchmen and how it brought comics into the mainstream. Allow them to grow up and be taken seriously. I can't and won't deny any of that. So while Watchmen may be Alan Moore's most famous achievement, I truly believe that Viva Vendetta is his most important creation. If I recommend one book of Moore's, it is this. It should be taught in school as an achievement in storytelling and also a way of conveying the fact that to people we are the ones that the government should be afraid of. This is a fiction that tells the truth as well as Of Mice and Men, To Kill a Mockingbird or 1984 and should be read with the same respect and passion. Good evening, London. Allow me first to apologise for this emergency channel. I do, like many of you, appreciate the comforts of the everyday routine, the security of the familiar, the tranquility of repetition. Bloody hell. I enjoy them as much as any bloke. But in the spirit of commemoration, whereby those important events of the past, usually associated with someone's death or the end of some awful bloody struggle, are celebrated with a nice holiday, I thought we could mark this November the 5th, a day that is sadly no longer remembered, by taking some time out of our daily lives to sit down and have a little chat. There are, of course, those who do not want us to speak. We think, just let me think. Expect even now, orders are being shouted into telephones, and men with guns will soon be on their way. It's Chancellor Sutton. Damn it! Why? Because while the truncheon may be used in lieu of conversation, words will always retain their power. Words offer the means to meaning, and for those who will listen, the enunciation of truth. And the truth is, there is something terribly wrong this country isn't that you designed it sir you wanted it foolproof you told me every television in london cruelty and injustice intolerance and oppression and where once you had the freedom to object to think and speak as you saw fit you now have sensors and systems of surveillance coercing your conformity and submitting your submission we need cameras how did this happen who's to blame well, certainly there are those who are more responsible than others, and they will be held accountable. But again, truth be told, if you're looking for the guilty, you need only look into a mirror. I know why you did it. I know you were afraid. Who wouldn't be? War, terror, disease. There were a myriad of problems which conspired to corrupt your reason and rob you of your common sense. Fear got the best of you, and in your panic you turned to the now High Chancellor Adam Sutler. He promised you order, he promised you peace, and all he demanded in return was your silent, obedient consent. Inspector, you're almost through. Last night I sought to end that silence. Last night I destroyed the old Bailey to remind this country of what it has forgotten. More than 400 years ago, a great citizen wished to embed the 5th of November forever in our memory. His hope was to remind the world that fairness, justice, and freedom are more than words. They are perspectives. So if you've seen nothing, if the crimes of this government remain unknown to you, then I would suggest that you allow the 5th of November to pass unmarked. But if you see what I see, if you feel as I feel, and if you would seek as I seek, then I ask you to stand beside me one year from tonight, outside the gates of Parliament, and together we shall give them a 5th of November that shall never, ever be forgotten.
Okay, this has been a lot of fun. And if you're still listening, thank you for sticking through my opinions for what they're worth. Now let's move on to a professional and see what he has to say. Recently, I interviewed Greg Carpenter, author of the great The British Invasion, Alan Moore, Neil Gaiman, Grant Morrison, and the invention of the modern comic book writer. Thank you for taking the time to uh, to join me. Um, a good starting point for me is, um, do you want to introduce yourself uh, and Sequart as well, actually, or is it Sequart? Uh, Julian Darius pronounces it in a way that my southern accent can't quite manage. Uh, so uh, it's short for sequential art, yeah. uh, kind of a, a blending those two terms together. And when I say it, it tends to come out Sequart, uh, <laughs> but... He does it with a much softer sound, and it sounds sounds a little different, but yeah. <laughs> so, uh, what about yourself? Um, how did you get involved with Sequart? Well, the first time I heard about them, it was actually a former student of mine uh, who knew that I had been interested in comics, and I had drifted away a little bit, mm-hmm. as, as some of us do sometimes, and he asked if I liked Grant Morrison, and I said, "Yeah, he was he was one of the guys that I that had really hooked me when I first got locked into comics." And he said, "Well, there's a book out um, called uh, Grant Morrison: The Early Years by Tim Callahan," and uh, he loaned me a copy. And it was the first time I'd ever seen or heard anything from Sequart, and uh, was I loved the book and uh, loved everything about it, really. Yeah, I've actually got a copy recently, so would you recommend it? Because it's, it's next on my reading list after your book, actually. Oh, I would. I think it's, I think it's very good. Um, it's very good. And it was, especially at the time, I had not seen a whole lot of material like that. Uh, something written on a contemporary writer uh, who was churning out stuff at the moment. And uh, it was both scholarly and at the same time very, very accessible uh, mm-hmm. in terms of and that's what I liked about it, and that was what was kind of the, uh, you know, as I as I was going through the book and reading all of the, the what I could read about Sequart, the more or less the mission statement was that notion of doing scholarly work that was also uh, also accessible for a general reader, and that was something I was very interested in. So that was my introduction to them. Mm. So, so really, how how did your book come about then? Had you been had you been with Sequart for a while, or was it the first thing you did with them? It was the first thing. I um, I had decided I wanted to write a book, and for uh, for me, uh, coming kind of from an academic background, choosing to write about comics was a little bit bold. Uh, so, I had decided I wanted to write a book, and uh, had settled more or less on general topics and was looking at places that I could potentially uh, send a pitch to. And I remembered Sequart, and I started devouring everything I could on their website about them. And I really liked what I was seeing, and it seemed like a really good fit. And so I sent a proposal in, and there was kind of a long period. We had a little back and forth on the proposal, and then there was a long period of silence followed by 
an acceptance uh, email, and that's when I started there. And then I wound up writing some columns for them and everything after that. Mm-hmm. Okay, so the book came first. So you say that you know it's a bold step to do something academic on comics. And I think it seems to be becoming a bit more acceptable in the last I don't know couple of years really. But they've always been considered, I suppose, the sort of uh, sort of the ginger stepchild of. Uh, of the you know the, especially of the literary world, um, so within your sort of like academic circles and stuff, was it uh, would, would it be frowned upon? Is it something that sort of you know peers would um, would read, or is it is it something they haven't really t- taken attention to? It was still it was still marginalized, uh, you know. And you're right, things are changing. They're changing almost by the month mm. where that's concerned, and almost every month you see. A notice of a new class or a new a new study program or something like that being set up, and certainly lots of, of books and material coming out now, journal articles. At the time this was formulating, which would take us back about five years or so, uh, not so much, and especially in this part of the country, uh, you know, not not so much. It was still um, the the idea of devoting. Uh, one's academic time to particularly to comics uh, was that was still a marginalized idea relatively speaking it wasn't it wasn't something totally out of left field but it was not expected yeah yeah and I think really they'll say the subjects of the book um, the, I mean they're the ones that have probably you know they've been the ones that have been received the most academic attention probably. You know, it probably becomes now wider to to accept other writers, other artists, and, and study their work as well. Um, but the book itself is it's. I mean, I've, I've really enjoyed it. Like you said about making uh, it accessible, um, it really is a good read, above and beyond anything else. It's actually a really interesting book. It's a really fun read. Um, but the book is part biography, part like critical analysis. Was there ever a difficulty of like of balancing the two? So it's like you know the fact of history with the opinion of analysis and the two blending together. Uh, definitely, that was that was something I wrestled with off and on throughout the whole process. Uh, you know, anytime you anytime you write something, you have these little negative voices that creep up in the back of your mind. And in my case, the negative voices that kept coming up were attempts to define what the book was not as opposed to what the book was mm. it's not it's not real journalism uh in the sense that i'm not going around interviewing alan moore's third grade teacher or something yeah. like that uh and uh at the same time uh it's not it's not uh a piece of academic writing that's loaded with tons of jargon and theory and that sort of thing it's kind of a hybrid what I eventually did was to look at some of the nonfiction books that I had admired over the last two or three years. Um, there was one. There was one book called uh, "Freedom Summer" that was about the civil rights movement in Mississippi mm-hmm. uh, here in the United States in 1964, and it was presented very much as a narrative. Uh, there was another book um, that was, uh, I think, it was called "The Man with the Golden Touch." It was uh, an analysis of the James Bond movie franchise. Okay. Uh, and it, too, it, it took the films one at a time, but it gave a lot of context. And by the time it was done, I felt like I had 
not just had a lot of analysis on individual films, but had a real sense of the story of that franchise and its mm. very manifestations. And then I read uh, a book on music uh, called uh, Fire and Rain that looked at the uh, the events of 1970 with breakup of the Beatles and uh, breakup of Simon and Garfunkel and the rise of James Taylor. And the, the, the writer was juggling chapters between these different musicians and what was going on at a certain point in the year, and it created a story. And so for me, when I came back to this book, what I ultimately decided I wanted to try to do was to make this point about how comics had changed, in particular uh, as a result of the change of the role of the writer, uh, and looking at these three guys in particular, and the way that their, their work had, had led to that impact, and the way that their their work over the years has kind of kind of been interwoven with each other, uh, and to tell that story, and their story would also be more or less the story of the mainstream comics industry, if all came together. Yeah, I mean the, the the period you know that starts off and or the period the period it covers really is is a fascinating time in comics in itself. I mean, you, you, like you say with the British invasion. Um, the early '90s and the birth of Image, um, you know, the, the near bankruptcy of Marvel. It's it's a really sort of it's quite a uh, contra- not controversial. It's just a rocky time really for comics. There was a lot going on, um, and the book itself takes a real positive spin on it. I think it's, it's shown that, that you know these guys, although they took slightly different tacks, there was there's more to the to the um, the medium than than just guys in tights sort of thing. Um, well, so regarding the subjects of the book, um, and one in particular, I come away with the impression of, of Alan Moore as sort of the experimental artist who struggles between like what he wants to consider artistic merit and a desire to create something for fun. Do you think this is a fair assessment of Alan Moore? It's just, I, I certainly see that conflict there. I think you've, you've got a guy who grew up on Mad Magazine and uh, some of the early Marvel comics, and is, has had a long-standing interest in pop culture and uh, some, of the, some of the characters from pop culture that don't necessarily get a lot of attention. And he's very much interested in that, and at the same time has sprawling literary ambition, um, just staggering at times. You know, he's a guy who just wrote a 1,200-page novel. Mm. Uh, you know, and so those two things, somebody who uh, is wanting to write 1,200-page novels and at the same time is interested in, the only phrase I can come up with, and I'll apologize for the phrase ahead of time because I don't like it, but the tra- trashier aspects of culture, you know, lo- yeah. local culture, if you will. Somebody who's interested in both of those things simultaneously, there's a tension, you know, that's boiling under there all the time. Uh, and so I, I, I think to some extent that would be fair, yeah. I mean, uh, when I was thinking of this, it sort of um, I went back and had a look through some of the materials and looking at um, the League of Extraordinary Gentlemen in particular um, uh, in the later volume, Century. Um, you know, he's trying to keep that literary theme and trying to keep the the storytelling and an ongoing thing. But you can tell, like you say, that the um, the little references and the jokes that you know that he's given to Kevin O'Neill to put put in the panels. Uh, that trashier element of pop culture. Um, there's a lot of um, 
references to sitcoms. There's a Steptoe and Cern. These are very British sitcoms, but there's a Steptoe and Cern, Only Fools and Horses. You know, things he would have grown up with. And that sort of feels... Yeah, conflict, I think, is a really interesting way of putting it. Um, I mean, having that, that, con- you know, that conflict going on then, do you say that he resents the fact that his popularity is predominantly based on some of his most mainstream work? I mean, in particular, Watchmen. He's he's certainly um, you know it seems like whenever he's interviewed by mainstream press he's he's often asked about Watchmen and oftentimes the Killing Joke and uh, you know rarely has rarely has positive things to say and of course when he says something negative the the comic book uh, fandom online goes bananas and uh, and everything and we have a whole new cycle I think a lot of a lot of the to use that word tension again, that comes out there where he seems to push back against the, the identification with the mainstream comics comes from so many of the professional difficulties uh, mm. that he experienced. You've got someone who's working really hard to maintain professional ethical standards in an industry that particularly in the early 1980s, mid-1980s, uh, had a long, long way to go, and it's still not there. But uh, there were he had problems uh, with the various corporations at almost every single step of his career, and as you know, I think that taints the work. Perhaps yeah. I don't want to put words in his mouth, but I think it taints something like Watchmen, so that when he sees Watchmen, what he sees is, oh yeah, Dave Gibbons and I were supposed to own those characters, but we don't. Yeah. Uh, And so then someone comes to interview him and they say, well, tell us about Watchmen, your greatest work. And it's just an eye roll at that point because he's done so much else. uh, Mm. Well, so really, I think when you say, um, you know, there's always the phrase of if if you're involved in a series of problems, the only consistent is you really. So, you know, during this period, do you think his um, stubbornness led him to be his own his own worst enemy? How, how so? What, what do you mean? Um, you know, if he's gone into conflict with these these organisations where others didn't, is it is it that you know he was he too, was he too rigid in his uh, morality and his standing to to work with these corporations? I'm, I'm hesitant to cast a to cast a judgment on that, I, mm-hmm. especially if you're talking about somebody trying to be too ethical. Yeah, uh, <laughs> uh, you know, you, you get into really odd moral territory at that point but uh you know i i think he he certainly has worked to be a little bit more rigid on some of those professional ethical standards than other people everybody makes their own choices um if you are if you're dedicated to that then then you you often wind up taking the lumps along the way and Mm. uh I think that certainly happened, but I don't necessarily point to him and say, "Yeah, you messed up. You just should have sold out more." Yeah, uh, you know, I don't think that's the takeaway from his story. I think ultimately um, he becomes kind of because he kept standing up and kept walking away. He becomes a little bit of the the sacrificial lamb, so that things gradually start moving in a somewhat more equitable direction. And in large part, it's because otherwise you lose people like Alan Moore. Yeah. 
that makes any sense. No, no, um, yeah, I see what you mean. So moving on to one of the other um, focuses of the book, then. So, so Neil Gaiman, um, you know, during this period, was able to fulfil most, or not if not all, of what he wanted to do in comics using the Sandman. Um, right. Having created his own sort of sandbox and area to play in, do you think this gave him security to dabble in the other areas, um, Spawn, Hellraiser, uh, and the others he contributed to? Oh, I. Definitely. I think it's, it's probably the, the best thing that happened to him career-wise was settling on that particular series, Sandman. Uh, his experiences working with DC outside of Sandman were hit and miss. Mm. Uh, several, several things that he tried to do. You know, there's one, one of the more famous ones was, I think Mark Wade was the editor at the time, but he asked, uh, he asked him to write the capstone story for Action Comics Weekly. And he came up with this story about Green Lantern and Superman and worked in all these other characters that had been featured in that title up until that point. And everything looked good, great story and everything, and they got ready to run. And someone else pointed out that in another title, apparently, Green Lantern didn't know Clark Kent was Superman. And so, and the whole story was pretty, and at that point, Gaiman had to shrug and they shelved the whole story. Mm. And brought it back a few years later as a curiosity item. But, you know, his, his similar sort of uh, uh, troubling experience with Swamp Thing uh, when he wrote an annual, and he and Jamie Delano were going to take over that title, and Rick Veach's story was ultimately canceled, and they both walked away. So Sandman gave him a safe place, uh, and it was an ideal sort of series for that, too, because it wasn't a series that was really based on tuning in next month to find out what happens to Morpheus. Yeah. It was instead a story where you could say, I think I want to do something with cats. <laughs> and, you know, and you get a cat story. And I want to do something with uh, Caesar Augustus. And there you go. And could take it in all the different sort of directions he wanted to and then get it back to the, to the main storyline eventually. And it was just a wonderful sort of, sort of safe place where he could, he could learn his craft and do the things he wanted to do and could venture out a little bit elsewhere. I don't think he was fast enough to venture out a whole lot in the way that somebody like Morrison mm. was. Uh, and that, you know, he's, he's described, Gaiman has described, uh, uh, you know, struggling to, to meet deadlines and everything because each issue is, in, if you read some of his notes, each one of the issues, he's dragging it out, out of himself. Mm. You know, gotta figure out how to finish this. I don't know, and fretting and pulling hair and and that sort of thing, and finally working the problems. And because he was taking as long as he was with it, I don't think he was able to just say, "I'm going to do four books a month or something." But uh, but it it always gave him a, a safe spot uh, while he was actively writing comics. Okay. I think that sort of seems to fit him better for the novels because it's it's sort of he can do it in his own time and he like you say he can take his time and, and draw out the story from himself as he needs to. Right. And um, discover along the way. Yeah, yeah, and I don't know if you've read, I'm assuming you've read the majority of his books and stuff. And I'm a big fan of uh, Neverwhere, American Gods, uh, Anasazi Boys. Um, 
and his tone and, and lyricism of, of you know the books they do follow a real sort of you can tell that they took time to create and right. I really enjoy that. Um, going to the other one then, so really, so that's what I'm saying. Well, Neil Gaiman and Alan Moore dabbled in the superhero um, pool. Uh, Alan, uh, Grant Morrison has increasingly like waded into it like deeper and deeper into that sort of mythology. Um, what I've read about Grant Morrison, I can easily believe that this is in part because people such as Alan Moore and Neil Gaiman declared that the superhero comics were sort of, or felt that they were limited in scope and merit. Um, do you think he's been able to prove, not them wrong, but has he been able to prove that sort of the superheroes can have merit and scope? I think he, uh, I think he has at least within the comics community. Um, mm. I don't know how much of the superhero stories have transcended the the comics reading community in the same way that something like Watchmen or Sandman has. But uh, I think, you know, if you look at his early stuff, he was resistant to superheroes as a genre as mm. well. He kept writing. What I kept seeing going through some of the earlier stuff were superhero stories that weren't superhero stories. Uh, and he was more comfortable with the tights and capes, perhaps, than, than particularly Gaiman was. But at the same time, he was almost immediately moving it to something else. Animal Man becomes this, this uh, you know, uh, metafictional story. Doom Patrol becomes this experiment in surrealism. Mm. And they're not like other superheroes. And they're not really superheroes. And there are all these little jokes about, uh, you know, they're not, they're not the Justice League and that sort of thing. Um, and so for the first wave of his career or whatever... Uh, he was writing superheroes, but I, uh, you know, it was always writing them in a way that they weren't superheroes. For me, at least, he doesn't really embrace that notion of the genre until probably the mid '90s when he came back from his illness and everything with um, yeah. with J.K. And you see a real shift and a real change, and that's where you get All Star Superman and and some of the things that came later. Um, but uh, you know, I think he's he's been able to to show that within the confines of that genre you can do almost any kind of story and that's that's a unique contribution uh in particular yeah uh, especially more since um i was thinking of you know final crisis 52 um and even uh, when they came back with the new 52 and he was able to do action comics um he always seems to, you know, like you say, although they're superhero comics, there, there's there's times when you can tell he's sort of he's, you can tell they're, they're Morrison books, you know, they're they're very definitively his books, um, which I always really enjoy. But think about you said about him coming back from his illness, um, uh, Grant Morrison. So, I mean, do you think the two there's always a, a rivalry, you know, in quotations between um, Alan Moore and Grant Morrison. But do you think that Moore staying in Northampton uh, and you know Morrison and his world tour, his drug experimentation, and coming back from the Ill illness um, affected sort of the scope and the style of their storytelling? I think you definitely see it with with Morrison. I mm. think you see, uh, you know, a much broader vision, much broader scope, doing all different types of stories with all different types of. And he was always heavily influenced by. A really eclectic set of set of influences, but as he becomes this world traveler and uh, 
going to different places and trying different things and everything. He's just, uh, the, yeah, definitely the scope of, of his vision gets much, much wider. In the case of Moore, um, maybe to some extent, uh, you see a little bit of the somebody who is, is settled in Northampton in the sense that I don't think somebody who is on the go all the time writing in hotel rooms and airport lobbies would be able to do something like From Hell. Mm. Uh, the, the meticulousness uh, and the long duration and the focus. And the, yeah, that's somebody in his house really focused, uh, yeah. you know, uh, really really digging deep uh, in a way that you couldn't do if you were constantly on the go. But at the same time, I, I look at things like Promethea and some of the other stories he's done, and I don't necessarily get a sense of Alan Moore the homebody or anything mm. like that. I don't feel a lot of limits placed on him where he's doing just introspective navel-gazing writing or, or anything like that. He, he still seems to to go in a lot of different directions. Um, but, uh, but I do think that the, the somewhat slower lifestyle, uh, strengthens some of the things, particularly something like from hell. Yeah. So you say about their influence, you know, there being the homebody or sort of the tour and that sort of thing, but there's, you also mentioned before, when we were talking about, you know, more and, and the conflict between artistic merit and it's, it's fun side because of the influences from a childhood. The one thing I find, interesting about a lot of British uh, writers in the American scene is the, the possible influence I suppose of the more I'd say the gritty and violent sci-fi and action comics of the sort of 60s and 70s uh, Warlord, Action, you know the birth of 2000 AD do you think the exposure to these is what sort of gives them their the difference uh, makes them you know, their quintessential Britishness it's it's possible. It's not something that they seem to talk a lot about. Mm. Uh, in fact, most of the time when they talk, they talk about their their American comics influences. Uh, but I think it probably shapes their notion of what you do with the medium uh, and what's possible to do with the medium, and uh, uh, fewer fewer restrictions, uh, more openness, uh, slightly older readership. That sort of thing. I think most American readers who grow up on, who would have grown up on comics, especially in the 60s and 70s, mainstream superhero genre comics, I think most American readers turned writers would automatically step into things with a whole preconceived set of limits mm. of what you can do and what you can't do and what's not allowed and that sort of thing. And Perhaps the, the cultural difference there uh, is is one of the reasons why there was a, a bit more openness. But in terms of direct influence, uh, oddly enough, most of them seem to point more towards a lot of the American comics that they read as kids. Yeah. And Gaiman, for example, talks about Will Eisner's The Spirit and some of the mystic uh, DC comics with the mystic heroes like Phantom Stranger from the early 70s as being seminal influences. And then he kind of drifted away from comics right around the time that some of those British publications um, started up in the mid to late 70s. Mm. Um, But it's an an interesting topic. Yeah, I mean, it's weird because I think 
especially later during this period, uh, 2000 AD in particular, sort of, I think it's one of the, it's the gateway drug for British comic readers in many ways. It's just, just a milestone for most uh, most kids. Um, so we talk about the British invasion. You know, we it's it's clear how important it was and how important these guys were to the the comics industry um, at, at that time. Um, but there were still there were American writers contributing in the you know towards the shift as well. You know, the the big name really is Frank Miller. Um, do you think that his contribution can be counted in the same vein as, as Moore and Morrison and Gaiman? It's, it's definitely related. Uh, and in fact, in early versions of this book, before it was focused particularly on the, these three British writers, uh, I was toying with the idea of dealing with a quartet. I'm glad I didn't because I'd still be writing right now. <laughs> <laughs> uh, the three was, was more than I could handle as yeah. it was. Um, no, there, he, he's definitely, particularly in the 80s, was, was doing things along the same lines. I think, for me, the classic example is everybody's favorite Easter egg from The Dark Knight Returns is in the fourth issue, where if you look at one of those crowd scenes, there's the guy standing on the sidewalk wearing a Miracle Man or a Marvel Man. Yes. Costume. Uh, you know, and it's more or less his nod of saying, yeah, this stuff I'm doing here in this story... A lot of it comes from, you know, comes from this Marvel Man character uh, that Moore had been writing. And they were certainly, they were on the same page doing slightly different things uh, mm. in those days. For me, the closer I looked at it, though, um, Miller's writing, groundbreaking in many ways, and so many things that I admire, Miller's writing was always a little more inconsistent uh, for me. The, his vision... Um, what he's trying to get across sometimes would get very murky and muddled. Uh, the the deeper I would look at a particular work, what am I supposed to walk away thinking about uh, this particular story? I was a little unsure. And then uh, as he moved on into the 90s, where these other guys were continuing to push things, I thought, in, in kind of organic directions, for their own work, um, Miller's writing seemed to become less and less nuanced or mm. less and less complex uh, for me and ultimately decided he's doing something different and it's it's tied up with it's tied up with the interaction between his writing and his art uh, and uh, the two of them kind of working in unison and at times very effective. Uh, but um, but ultimately seemed to be singing a slightly different song, if that makes sense. Yes, no, no. I actually read an article recently. It described Frank Miller as um, having his only consistency is his inconsistency. Yeah. Was that yeah. he can go up and down, and he has got so many variances, and um, he's got works that I I really love. You know, Dark Knight Returns. I'm actually a, I actually do enjoy Dark Knight Strikes Back. Um. um I just find it very unusual. It's not a Batman book per se, but I just find it as unusual. Sin yeah. City is interesting, but I see you see he becomes more of a sledgehammer. Right. Um, the more he seems to write. Um, there are moments. There are moments where I I read uh, like some of the Sin City books. The first time I read any of those, uh, I w- I kept asking myself, is this satire mm. or is it earnest? 
Mm. And I keep asking that question, which is an odd question to ask when you're a hundred pages in. Uh, <laughs> but <laughs> um, no, I, I, I always pay attention to what he's doing and I'm not trying to really run him down because uh, hugely influential and there are, there are moments the first oh, 20 or 30 pages of, uh, of The Dark Knight Returns for me reads almost like opera. That's mm. uh, gorgeous. By the fourth issue for me it seems to be falling apart in some ways but, but falling apart in a very nice messy sort of way. Mm. But other times I, I look at it and I shake my head and I'll just be honest I don't know I don't know what he's getting at uh, that for me that was I read Dark Knight Strikes again three times and disliked it more each time I've gone back to it so I stopped <laughs> no I know I know what you mean it, it's um, I find the art in places places almost impenetrable like right. so hard to look at. Um, and other things I've just I just refuse to read. I've never read three hundred. He did another one um, right. that, that, that are clearly driven by his own sort of almost political um, Holy, ideas. Holy yeah, Holy Terror is tough to tough to get through. Yeah, I've I've, I've never even bothered to be honest. Yeah. Um, so sort of think of the legacy of then these guys. Um, you know, they almost is it fair to say that these guys introduced long form storytelling to the comic industry. Um, and you know, could could we say then that people like my, Brian Michael Bendis and Jonathan Hickman have really benefited from their influence? Oh, most definitely. Um, you know, there's there's a whole generation of people who who came in their way. Some of them, you know, pretty much on their heels. Uh, but yeah, people like uh, like Bendis, uh, who I particularly admire, with um, uh, you know a lot of dialogue driven stories and. You don't have to get in a hurry, and you don't have to make a story all about uh, all about a story that was published six years ago. Mm. That you are kind of redefining certain elements, and, and that was one of the more incestuous aspects of the American comics industry that that I found tiring uh, were consistent retreads of older stories, uh, and instead. You know, one of the legacies, I think, is the idea that you can come to some of these genre stories within comics, but you don't have to make them about older comics. You can you can make them about all sorts of things, whatever it is you're interested in, whatever you're reading, whatever it is that's going on in the world can find its way into a story that also might have somebody in capes and tights or might have yeah. somebody with... Ray guns and robots and rocket ships and what have you. And I feel, especially let's say with Brian Michael Bendis, his uh, his Ultimate Spider-Man run was was very much that in some cases. I mean, it's it's it's, it's very much a Spider-Man retread, um, but he redefined it for the twenty first century and he made it relevant. And it's as a whole, having read all of it, it's um, it's brilliant. And yeah. I think, you know, it's, it's such a good piece in that sort of form. It is long-form storytelling, but with story arcs, you know, telling that story. Well, my, my favorite issue from that run is, uh, I don't remember what number it is, but the uh, the Revelation issue where Peter Parker tells Mary Jane who he is. Mm. Uh, the whole story takes place in, in the apartment, in the bedroom, you know, and yes. they're just talking back and forth. And you would have never seen a story like that 15 years earlier 
No. Uh, you know, nobody would have been able to slow down because you got to get your money's worth from your, from your, uh, you know, 60 cents or whatever mm. you spent at that time. You got to get your money's worth out of your 20 some odd pages. And instead, once we start looking at things in terms of chapters of long story arcs and everything, you get that sort of decompressed storytelling that uh, particularly Gaiman did so well in Sandman. Um, and, and Bendis is able to show off what he's really good at, yeah. which are just the, the little, the little nuances of character and, and the dialogue back and forth, writing dialogue like nobody else. So really just think about those two then. I mean, I mentioned, uh, Bendis and, and, and Hickman. Is there anybody else you think that's, that's writing comics at the moment that we may be talking about similarly in... 15, 20 years' time? I think Matt Fraction has been interesting. Mm. Um, I've, liked, I've liked several things that I've seen uh, from him. I thought his his Hawkeye run, for example, was... Oh, very good, yeah. Yeah, yeah, it was brilliant. And also the... Uh, what's the uh, the martial artist? Um, Iron, Iron Fist? Oh, yes. Uh, yeah. yeah it's, uh, was also very interesting. Uh, I think he's a he's an exceptional writer. There are a lot of good writers um, out there. There are some who are you know they're, they're not exactly newcomers, but mm. obviously people who followed who followed the the ones that I'm talking about. People like Warren Ellis, for example, who's really just uh, you know three, four, five years younger than they are, mm. uh, but uh, but it certainly had a huge influence as well. Um, but yeah, Matt Fraction and uh, also uh, uh, Brian K. Vaughan. Yes. Uh, yeah, yeah. You know, uh, you see you see a lot of similarities as well. Yeah, and I, I, I'd really like. I mean, Brian K. Vaughan's one of those writers that if he, whatever he's doing, I will at least give the first issue a go. Exactly. But I will always probably come back and buy the trade later on because it's one of those I think is better as a. Um, a whole or you know as ongoing series than trying to do it issue by issue um, yeah, I mean, uh, for me um, Scott Snyder um, right. I loved okay. his Batman run and, and um, yeah. American Vampire and that sort of thing I think they're fantastic yeah. brilliant very thoughtful too mm. I mean, when, I think about, uh, when I think about American Vampire um, one of the my, my dissertation was actually on American drama but uh, one of the playwrights that I focused on was a guy named August Wilson, and uh, who wrote Fences. Uh, there's a movie out with Denzel Washington right now. Yes. But uh, August Wilson uh, wrote the story essentially of the 20th century. Each one, of, he wrote 10 plays, and each one was set in a different decade. And the idea was to try to capture the 50s, uh, mm. in, in the case of Fences, by looking at this guy who worked for uh, driving a sanitation truck and uh, to capture the 60s by looking at the people hanging out in this cafe in Pittsburgh and so on. And American Vampire is kind of based on a similar sort of notion, you know, of covering these periods of time, you know, with each volume and advancing along the way and telling a much larger story in addition to just the, uh, just the, the focused one on the, on the monsters. Mm. It's weird because there are there's, there's there's existing books at the moment that are coming out that I'm almost looking forward to seeing them as a whole 
um, so that you can actually see that entire picture. I think American, American Vampires one, uh, Brian K. Vaughan's Saga um, is another. That when you see the complete picture, it you know is, is it would be a greater piece, you know, a greater whole than the pieces that were that were uh, in it. That, I think, is one of the things that has changed most profoundly. I mostly don't read single issues anymore. Mm. I uh, I stopped a long time ago. Honestly, it was Grant Morrison who, uh, who got me to stop because I would read individual issues. They were over in a blink. I often didn't quite know exactly what I had read. And then by the time 30 days rolled around, I had forgotten everything. Yeah. And... When I would read them in sequence, it was like, oh, wow, he dropped this little hint of this eight issues earlier, and there it is, plain as day, but there's no way you're going to remember it, or there's no way it's going to resonate unless you've read it much more recently. And it was, uh, you know, it was ultimately struggling with Grant Morrison that made me just throw up the whole idea of, of monthly issues and say, I'm going to read story arcs. Yeah. Uh, story arc's done, I'll read it, and it'll make sense, and it's coherent, and it does, uh, and I think that's one of the more fundamental changes that's taken place as well. Do you think that's going to be a more, do you think that's an ongoing thing, is that an evolution of the comics industry? Are we going to be moving towards the release of, like you say, story arcs as a whole, rather than monthly comics? The, the, I think that's where a lot of people have wanted to go. Mm. The the, the realities of getting paid uh, and needing to uh, needing to find a way to subsidize the stories. It's the one reason everything didn't go, I think, graphic novel a long time ago. Yeah, uh, is that uh, there's no real infrastructure to support somebody going off and spending a year or a year and a half completing uh, this long story arc and then releasing it as a book. Mm. And instead, you got to pay the light bill uh, yeah. before before that rolls around. And things are so structured on serialization uh, that if there is a solution, I don't, I haven't seen it yet. Uh, so what we have is this weird hybrid where we're working in a serialized format. Everybody's reading serialized stories. They're writing and drawing serialized stories, but more and more we're viewing them as these larger story arcs and you know getting either the best or the worst of both worlds i don't know which it's weird because i think that that we're educated by what i suppose you know is easy to access and we're now being educated to binge uh, consume things so right, right. I, and i'm just as guilty of it as anybody but you know i don't watch game of thrones by episode i don't watch walking dead yeah. by episode or anything like that i'll go right. well, i'll wait and I'll watch the lot in one go, or you know, in, in a couple of episodes at a time, or something. Right. So that mentality of having to wait month on month um, for um, issues—it it does. It seems almost like counterintuitive now to the way that we want to consume uh, media. Right. Um, and it, it's hard. In my case, I often just have to try to tune out what's going on this month. Mm. Uh, that everybody's talking about because I don't read the because I don't read the monthlies. Oftentimes, I don't really know what's going on, and then eight months later, I'm like, "Oh yeah, I see what they were talking about now," and yeah. uh, it starts yeah. to make sense. 
there, you know, I if there is a smooth path five years from now, I don't know what it is. I haven't seen it yet. Yeah, it's weird. I mean, I can think of like, you no, know, there are Brit- the art is what differentiates them from novels and and for, for writing. I suppose it is. It's, it's the the amount of effort and time that has to go in the into the collaborative work to put it together. I suppose that prohibits it from being releasable in a in a in a mass um, story. Right. Um. So one more final question. Then. So in in the book, you mentioned the issues um, uh, in which each author sort of makes their statement of intent. Um. Uh, Alan Moore's first issue of Swamp Thing or no, the uh, Anatomy Lesson. Right. Um. Uh. The Sandman issue number seven. Um. I forget the name of it now. Um. And uh. The Coyote Coyote Gospel in Animal Man. Um, but in your opinion, what is the defining or quintessential work for each of these each of these guys? The um, yeah, that's a that's a tough question. Uh, for more, the um, the two that kind of compete for space, uh, at least where I think of it, are uh, are Watchmen, where you have a uh, a genre story that is as meticulously executed panel by panel, line by line, coordinating with Gibbons on every little effect all the way through. Um, there's there's Watchmen, and then there's From Hell, uh, which, for me, I guess to answer your question, I think in terms of comics, I think From Hell is, is it's a staggering piece of work. It's mm-hmm. the one that every time I go back to it, I'm more knocked over by it than I was the last time and um and so i think for me i would probably have to point to that one for alan moore it um it seems more all-encompassing to me but uh you know they're both they're both marvelous words yeah uh for gaiman i'm tempted to cheat and just say sandman sandman's yeah. is essential work um you know and see if that flies uh but uh it's it's tougher um you know, to point to a single thing. With Gaiman, when I think of Gaiman, I think of somebody who is a master of of tone and of mood. Yeah. And uh, much more so than plot, for example. He's, he's not necessarily a natural plotter, uh, but he's, he's as good at mood as anybody's ever been. And so you can look at something like Mr. Punch, uh, which is just seamlessly written and coordinated with Dave McKeon all the way through and just beautiful. Um, but uh, I don't know that it necessarily um, says as much as gets said in Sandman because Sandman's got so many different directions that it mm. takes it. Uh, and so in a way, you can, you can talk about individual Sandman Issues you can talk about individual Sandman story arcs, or you can talk about Sandman as a whole, as a collective. And so my inclination is to cheat and to say Sandman as a whole. Um, no, I'm, uh, I'm happy to accept that. It's a it's a piece of art. So okay, well we'll we'll work with it then. Yeah. And uh, for Morrison, uh, I think his his definitive work uh, is as. The Invisibles for mm. me. Um, it, I can't claim to understand every single nuance of it. Uh, there are a few places that uh, you know I go through 
fifth time, sixth time, and still scratch my head. Yeah. But um, I think that's his most ambitious piece and um, says more of what he ultimately is trying to do than anything else. I, I would hold out just a little bit for Flex Mentallo, mm. which me is it's more carefully constructed uh, and uh, I think in a lot of ways is his best written piece and is, is still, uh, it's better since it's in print again, but is still ignored far too often for my, for my money. Uh, I think it's a, one of his masterpieces. Yeah, I found it by accident actually because I, I bought the Doom Patrol omnibus. Yeah, yeah. And, and it was on the Amazon, you know, um, customers also bought. <laughs> so right. uh, uh, I managed to get that as well. I, I really enjoyed it. and I, So, uh, yeah, I, I really I think that's a great. And I love um, Frank Quietly's art as well. Right. Um, uh, really sort of finishes off. Um, Greg, that's been fantastic. It's been fantastic talking to you. Um, well, it's been me too. Thank you for taking the time again. And... Uh, for for any listeners, is if uh, can you do you want to plug anything? Do you want to plug the book? Is it? Um, it's, I got it off Amazon. Um, is it being released anywhere else? Uh, it's uh, it was in previews, so uh, individual comic shops are able to order it, uh, or you can find it on Amazon or through the website at Sequard. Any Excellent. of those. Brilliant. Thank you very much, and uh, I, I will be uh, I'll be perusing Sequard for more work as well. Okay. Excellent. Okay, well, thanks so much. It's been wonderful. You too. Thanks very much. And that's it. This one's been an epic one for me. I've had to dig into all kinds of things. The amount of books I've read, the amount of comics I've read. It's been wonderful. Uh, and talking to Greg Carpenter was fantastic. So I hope you've enjoyed it and I hope you've stuck with us. It's been quite a long one. Uh, I hope you've learned something and I hope you will go away and uh, try out some of the some of these books and uh, dig into these creators. Alan Moore, Grant Morrison, Neil Gaiman, uh, fantastic, fantastic creators. Uh, this isn't the end though. Uh, check out the blog on 20thCenturyGeek.com uh, where I'm actually going to be writing up some reviews of both uh, Greg Carpenter's book and uh, the issues I mentioned, um, the statement of intent issues I mentioned earlier on. Uh, in addition to that, next week uh, I bring in the comic book guys, uh, some guys from my local comic shop, and we get together and we get to talk about these guys. So I uh, hope you listen in. Okay, if you want to make contact or you've got any comments or thoughts on the show, please email me at 20thCenturyGeek at gmail.com. Find me on Twitter at 20th Century Geek, or of course, visit the website. Check out the website, leave me some comments, leave me a review, uh, and contact us. 20thCenturyGeek.com. Uh, and if you're on iTunes, please subscribe, leave us a review, it's all good. Okay, thanks very much. <laughs> <laughs>